Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday, time for a Vault episode. This episode originally aired on January 16th, 2020, and it's about horseshoe crabs. I remember this was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I, it sounds fun, but though this is one of those when I was putting it in our schedule for the Vault episode, I realized I had no memory of this one at all, really. I mean, I vaguely remember researching uh, some of the stuff about the blood and the usefulness of, of horseshoe blood, but I, mm. I really don't remember this episode otherwise. I don't know why. Oh, I remember this episode led me to discover a really cool book, though, that was about horseshoe crabs and, uh, and, and evolution. So, yeah, yeah, it was a good one. All right. Let's dive in. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about an underappreciated evolutionary marvel, the horseshoe crab. Robert, this uh, this episode was your idea, and I'm so glad you, you thought of this. Yeah, and I'll, I'll bring up a little later in the episode what... Um what reminded me that the horseshoe crab uh, should be a topic of discussion. But but really, this is a creature I, I feel like that I've been admiring my whole life. It's frequently brought up. Uh, it's frequently pointed out to me. I remember as a kid being, if not shown an actual horseshoe crab, being, maybe I was shown like the remnants of one that had washed up or a picture of one. And it was explained to me that like this is a, a unique organism, that you don't find uh, many things uh, that are really like it on this earth, on the earth today. And if you went back far enough in time, you would find them in uh, in ages of uh, of strange biological diversity that would otherwise seem alien but the horseshoe crab has remained largely constant it is an olive colored lump from the Jurassic period and beyond yeah so one of the great things about it is it's sort of perfect fodder for our show I think because it's something that uh, if you don't go deep on it it might be uh, you might think of it as a kind of like lowly and uninteresting just sort of lump in the mud with with some scuttling claws and mm-hmm. you know there's not really much to it. There's a lot to it. Uh, th- this creature is marvelous. And to start us off, I want to inspire some wonder by by reading a passage with a few abridgments from a really excellent book I've been reading this week by the British paleontologist Richard Forty called Horseshoe Crabs and Velvet Worms, the story of animals and plants that time has left behind. It was uh, published in th- 2012. Now, velvet worms, by the way, we, we spoke about them oh, recently. Yes. It was potentially buried. If you skip our movie episode, Episodes, and you shouldn't. Uh, we did an episode on The Tingler, uh, that old Vincent Price horror movie. And the title character in, or the title monster uh, in that film, The Tingler, very closely resembles a velvet worm. So we discussed its unique biology. So to be mentioned in the same sentence as the velvet worm, that should uh, let you know that the horseshoe crab is no joke. Totally. So Richard Forty, the author of this book, is a former president of the Geological Society of London. He spent much of his career as a staff paleontologist at the British Natural History Museum, where his research included a special focus on our old friends, the trilobites. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he's also done a lot of public natural history communication, appearing on BBC documentaries and stuff like that. So in the opening chapter of this 2012 book, Forty is describing a massive gathering of horseshoe crabs that he witnessed one night on a beach in Delaware. Uh, So I'll begin reading here. Deep in the night along the shores of Delaware Bay, the horseshoe crabs are stirring. The tide is now high and there is no moon. Darkness rules, but even in the feeble starlight, the overwhelming flatness of the countryside can be made out, except along the rim of the bay where old sand dunes have built up a levee, heave with gentle movements. First, I notice some very odd sounds. There is a general hollow clattering, a tapping and grinding sound, somewhat like that made by knocking coconut shells together, once used on the radio to imitate horses' hooves, but altogether less rhythmic and with a kind of underlying push. Then, as my eyes get used to the darkness, low shelly mounds the size of inverted colanders can be seen slowly pushing and jostling all along the 
shore and perhaps six meters up into the sands. They're bumping and clambering together as the source of those tap-tapping percussive sounds. The flash of an infrared torch reveals more details. The head shield of the horseshoe crab is domed upwards and carries a few weak spines. At its back end, a hinge marks a jointed boundary with a second large plate, spiny at the edge, which can flap downwards, and beyond that again projects a stout triangular spike as long as the head, which can waggle up and down. Here, at Kit's hummock, more crabs are gathered on the mudflats seaward of the sands waiting their turn. Strange, green-black, slowly animated lumps. Further offshore again in the shallow seawater, tail spikes project briefly above the gentle waves like raised radio antenna and are gone, showing where still more horseshoe crabs vie with one another to get their place on the sand. So if that doesn't uh, tempt you to buy the book, I, I will say the, the whole thing I think is great. Like that, Forty is, uh, he's a great scientist, but also a really great writer. And this book is just a fabulous read. Yeah, um, I, I like the, the details he gives to describing it. Like one thing that I, I think stands out for me is the horseshoe crab always looked like uh, an, an element from a suit of armor. You know, yeah. it has a, it, it, it looks like a little tank uh, mm-hmm. moving along the shoreline. Well, yeah, exactly. And there's a good reason it looks like that. I mean, that is quite literally what it is. This is a creature that is mostly a suit of armor, especially if you're looking down from above, right? Uh, it, it is quite literally biological armor. Uh, now, Forty goes on to explain the marvels of the scene. He says there are thousands of these creatures gathered on the beach and coming onto the beach from the waves. Uh, he he at one point finds one horseshoe crab upturned on its back in the sand, desperately bending its tail spike up and down in an attempt to flip itself back over, which is a strategy that I believe would probably work in the water, but not so much on the land. Um, and despite his status as a scientific observer, Forty admits that he's unable to resist the urge to right the animal. <laughs> and he does, grasping it by its head shield, and he flips it. Uh, but once upright, of course, it doesn't say any thanks. It just kind of trundles away and gets back to business. But what is this business? It is mating. This is a giant convention of horseshoe crabs, essentially for the purpose of an invertebrate orgy. And that's not, Forty, Forty himself uses the word orgy. I, I think that. That is the correct term for this. So he notes that the largest animals on the beach are digging down in the sand. Uh, So while their dorsal shields hide most of what's going on, their jointed limbs underneath are industriously removing sand. And then uh, some of the larger crabs end up digging themselves so far down that they're almost completely buried. And these larger creatures, the ones doing the digging, are the females. They will ultimately be burying their freshly laid eggs in the sand here on the beach. Meanwhile, smaller crabs are fighting to climb on top of the buried females. These smaller ones are the males. And the reason they're fighting for positioning is that they're competing for a chance to fertilize the female's eggs with their sperm cells, which are called milt. And uh, Forty realizes that much of the tapping he's talking about in that passage I read, that clacking noise that he heard in the dark, comes from what he calls uh, tussles for dominance, male horseshoe crabs knocking one another about by the exoskeletons as they fight for a chance to be the first in line to reproduce. And this can get really violent. Forty notes that finally uh, many of them don't survive this night of mass invertebrate sex on the beach. In the morning, the shore is just littered with assorted chunks of horseshoe crab carcasses. It's an amazing scene, and I I wish I could be present to see this someday. (laughs) I would go to Delaware for that. That would get me into Delaware. Yeah, they should put it on the license plate, right? Yeah. Uh, This does remind me of a a story that that I've heard before. Um, My wife's grandmother had an amusing tale of horseshoe crabs. I believe this is a tale from the Great Outer Banks uh, of the United States, Uh, though she also lived in Australia for a time when she was younger, so it might be a tale from Australia. But I'm pretty sure it's Outer Banks. Uh, Anyway, the story goes that uh, she happened upon a bunch of horseshoe crabs on the beach and thought they were in danger. So... um, my wife's grandmother then devoted an hour or so to collecting them and hurling them back into the sea, only to learn later that they had come ashore to mate. <laughs> <laughs> so she thought that they were like beached whales, essentially. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. they're usually not there. Here they are in mass. Maybe something is wrong. They mm-hmm. need help. You know, throw them back in before the birds get them, that sort of uh, thing. So she meant well, uh, but uh, it turns out she was interfering in their natural process. Ooh. 
I bet those were some frustrated invertebrates. Uh, now, these mass matings on the beach bear a, an actually pretty great ecological significance. Uh, Forty describes uh, the eggs they lay as tiny and green, and he writes that they're, they're laid together in these golf ball-sized clumps of, of about 4,000 to 6,000 eggs apiece. Uh, he says up to 15 or so males will have the opportunity to fertilize the eggs of a single female. And during a reproductive cycle, a single female horseshoe crab might lay about 80 to 100,000 eggs total. And and yet, Forty notes that on average, it's estimated that only about 33 out of every million eggs survive into adulthood. So again, this comes back to kind of in the invertebrate numbers game, much like we talked about in our Christmas Island crabs episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a lot of larvae and only a tiny fraction of them actually ever become adult crabs. Uh, but uh, this mass of eggs and juveniles that don't survive – they're ecologically very important because, like the Christmas Island crabs, they are an important food source for lots of animals living in and passing through the region. Uh, loggerhead turtles prey on the crabs even into adulthood. Uh, the, the, that is kind of weird imagining eating a horseshoe crab because if you look at one, it just really does not look like it would have much good meat. It looks like an animal made entirely out of shell and bone. So I was looking around on this, and uh, in some parts of the world, they are sometimes harvested for food, but only the eggs or roe are edible. Uh, according to MalaysiaBest.net, which has a blog post about this and some photos, you'll find them on the menu in some restaurants, either grilled and flipped over for roe consumption, or some places you can get the roe already scooped out and served to you. And I, I read that the the eggs basically have a rubbery texture and a salty taste, so nothing really all that exotic in terms of um, of you know eating uh, you know the, the the eggs of, of marine uh, uh, creatures uh, like this. Uh, but again, they, you know, they are favorites among uh, birds and other creatures, and the, the horseshoe crab is a keystone species for this reason. Like it's, we're going to spend a lot of time on this show talking about you know how ancient they are and their ancient origins. It's easy to maybe fall into this notion that they are an outcast, that they're not really important. They're just a throwback. But no, they have a very important role, and a number of species, again, like migratory uh, seabirds, depend upon them. Yeah, you're exactly right about that. And Forty talks about this at length that uh, you know the birds will peck around in the sand to find the hidden caches of buried eggs. Mm-hmm. Um, so this scene that Forty describes so vividly uh, is not just an amazing spectacle of nature. We sort of alluded to this earlier, but it's also a window into the deep history of planet Earth and a way to think about the wonders of evolution across geologic time. So uh, maybe we should take a closer look at the horseshoe crab and its anatomy and its body before we kind of zoom out to the evolutionary picture. Yes, absolutely. And uh, and we do encourage you, look up some footage or some images of the creature if you have a chance to while, while we're discussing it here, um, because that'll be helpful. Uh, though I think a lot of you, if not most of you, have seen a horseshoe crab before and have at least a basic idea in your mind of what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess maybe let's start from looking from above, right? The way you would normally see one if you're looking down at it on the beach. So from above... The horseshoe crab is this closed dome of armor that has three obvious body segments. The first segment is the head shield, uh, technically known as the prosoma, which is a solid, rounded, vaguely horse hoof shaped plate of protective chitinous material, uh, which Forty says is similar to the material you'd find making up the wings of a beetle. And then it's got on top of that uh, head shield two obvious compound eyes poking up on, on either side. And those compound eyes are used for locating mates. Uh, one thing I was reading about them that was very interesting is that they uh, they have drastically different levels of light sensitivity between the night and day cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so during the daytime, the receptors in those compound eyes are tuned way down, I guess, to make them you know less likely to get blinded by the light coming in from above. But in the nighttime, they get tuned way up, and that's, I think, primarily used for seeing a mate somewhere on the beach and navigating toward it in the dark because, again, this the, a lot of the spawning happens at night. I think the eyes are, are kind of really key to the 
the human experience of the horseshoe crab because you know we, we like things with eyes that we, we it helps us sort of connect with them and sort of even think of a personality for them mm-hmm. the horseshoe crab's eyes uh, certainly at first glance anyway they, they seem to have a certain seriousness to them or even yeah. kind of a determination or a, a even a sinister quality and no, so they're, they're just all business yeah, yeah. they look they, they look very serious they don't have like goofy eyes you know we've discussed animals on the show before that from the human perspective may even have have googly eyes, but no, these, planaria, yeah. Yeah, like planaria. these, however, they look very serious. And so we kind of consider them seriously, I think, sometimes. Well, it turns out they're even more serious than you think, because they've got those two big compound eyes that are that have that uh, alternating sensitivity, good for locating mates. Mm-hmm. But the horseshoe crab actually has something like 10 eyes total. Uh, th- these are, you know, less easily identifiable as eyes just by looking at them. But they've got basically 10 photosensitive spots or organs that in some way help the creature detect light and detect movement. Okay, so that's the big first part of it, the domed part, the head shield. Then you got, uh, if you're going from front to back, you've got the next segment which connects behind the head shield, and this is the abdomen, also known as the opus thesoma. Uh, this is a more flattened plate attached to the head shield by a hinge, as Forty wrote, and, uh, and it's got these backward-facing spines along its lateral edges. And then finally, the horseshoe crab terminates in this long, straight, rigid tail known as a tail. Telson. Uh, and if you've ever seen one of these animals moving or being handled, especially if you've seen, you know, like a demonstration where somebody holds a, a, a horseshoe crab upright for you to see its underside, you know, the tail can kind of whip up and down dramatically. Now, other um, arthropods have telsons as well, such as the shrimp. And I think the shrimp is a great example because a lot of you have probably at least some, you probably have some experience with shrimp tails mm. uh, con- via consuming shrimp tails. So in shrimp, <laughs> Lobsters, krill, and crayfish. Uh, the 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 telson is important for what is known as the uh, the caridoid escape reaction, in which a downtail tail flip allows a startled individual to dart backwards through the water. Which uh, again, that kind of comes back to what you said earlier about how the the thrashing of the tail would be more useful to to right oneself or to escape a stressful situation in the water as opposed to on land. Yes, and that's a really interesting thing to look at too, because when you look at it. Display like the tail wagging up and down. This, uh, you know, the the rigid pointed stick there, basically. Especially when the animal is handled, you might guess it's a defensive weapon, right? You'd think like, okay, stinger of a scorpion, and a lot of people do assume that about the horseshoe crab that it's got a stinger on its telson, and uh, that guess would be half right and half wrong. The correct part is that there probably is an evolutionary relationship at play in the similarity with the scorpion's tail. We'll come back to that in a bit. But the wrong part would be to assume that it is a stinger weapon. It, it is not. As we were talking about, primarily uh, it's used to, to help the horseshoe crab navigate aquatic environments. So it can help the animal steer its body while it's swimming, but it can also help the animal, like we said, right itself once it becomes flipped on its back. And you can imagine in its natural habitat this could happen quite a bit because th- this is a creature that's going to be dealing with the physical tumult of the tidal zone. You know, you can imagine it might get rolled upside down in the surf or it might get rolled over while it's clambering around on something in the mudflats. And this popping up and down motion of the tail can help flip it back over like one of those spring flipping wind up toys. Mm. Uh, now, I just mentioned swimming. One other very strange aspect of the horseshoe crab is that when it's time to swim, the horseshoe crab usually swims upside down, doing a kind of invertebrate backstroke with its head shield angled down toward the bottom and its jointed legs paddling toward the sky. Uh, if you can find video of this, this it, we'll, we'll probably recommend you go look at video of several things in this episode because mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of this animal's movements and behaviors are, are fascinating to see. But yeah, if you can find video of it swimming with its legs inverted up toward the sky, it looks very strange, very cool. And it, well, it, yeah, it's basically just a backstroke. Well, as long as the animal's flipped over here, let's discuss what's going on underneath the armor. I think that's a great idea. So, yeah, we'll be flipping it over, looking at its belly. And on this side, it is Bug City. You've got five pairs of jointed walking legs that'll look kind of like crab legs or spider legs. And these are known as pedipalps. Uh, the, the first uh, four pairs of legs all end in a, a pincer claw shaped tip. So imagine kind of a regular, 
uh, crab with claws on all of its walking feet. But then the final pair of legs ends in what looks like a kind of strange flower shape, which is apparently used mostly for digging. And then toward the front of the head and in, in, uh, in front of the, the walking legs, there's another smaller pair of appendages that are known as the chelicery. And we'll come back to their significance in a moment, but they're primarily used for guiding food toward the mouth. So here's maybe one of my – this might be my favorite part. Where's the mouth? You might expect in line with other crabs and invertebrates that the mouth is in the front-facing part of the head. But nope. In horseshoe crabs, the mouth is in the middle of the underside between all of the animal's jointed spidery legs. So as the legs move, any food caught underneath them is sort of shuffled inward toward a crevice running between the leg pairs, aided by these gripping spines that run along the inside of the appendages. So as the legs scuttle, the food is also partially chewed up by those legs and prepared for digestion. There's this grinding, scraping action of the exoskeleton parts of the legs and the joints. So in perhaps illicit anthropomorphic terms, the horseshoe crab has crotch mouth and leg teeth. Yes, but on the other hand, I feel like if you really break down how any animal, including not especially humans, um, eat, it's it's all pretty gross. So. <laughs> Oh, uh, no, I'm sure they think the way we eat is great, especially when we're eating their eggs. But but I do uh, I do agree that the footage is very interesting and one should check it out. Amazing. Yeah, look at the, there are videos of this online as well. Yeah, it also reminds me that a a fictional creature that the horseshoe crab is very typically compared to these days is, of course, the the xenomorph alien face hugger. Mm. Um, like even that uh, that uh, Malaysian blog post about uh, eating them uh, uh, or eating their their eggs uh, at a restaurant uh, invoked the face hugger comparison. Uh, it's kind of inevitable at this point, though. I'm not sure. I, Does I've, the face hugger eat? Um, no. I'm, well, okay. Ooh, I mean, that's a whole other description Whoa. to start talking about the face hugger <laughs> and how it matches up with, um, uh, with, uh, with actual biology. I'll have to save that for another episode. But, uh, but the, the face hugger does have the, um, you know, what is kind of like a mouth. It, ha- it definitely has a, a, a tubular orifice that emerges from the underside in pretty much the same place one would find the, uh, the mouth of the horseshoe crab. Uh, but just in general, the horseshoe crab and the and the face hugger have kind of uh, similar body layouts, uh, even though they're they're rather you know uh, textually different. I can agree with that. Though I guess maybe another similarity: if the face hugger doesn't actually eat and it's just like a you know no no digestive system reproductive organism. Well, I would I think you could even class say that the the face hugger in Alien is a mobile sexual organ. Yes. But but to bring it back to, to the horseshoe crabs, 40 writes that mature adults can sometimes go for months at a time without eating. Mm-hmm. So these things are tough. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then also to continue our exploration of the underside, uh, behind the legs and the mouth crack on the animal's underside, you will see a series of overlapping leaf-like flaps. And these are the animal's gills, which allow it to breathe by absorbing dissolved oxygen from the water. Uh, And the horseshoe crab can survive out of water for a time if it can keep its gills wet. These organs are a specific type of underwater breathing apparatus. Uh, Unlike many other animals' gills, these are are known as book gills. Now, you might have heard us talk before about other arthropods with book lungs, animals such as the spider. And with that teasing detail, maybe we should take a break and then come back. All right, we'll be right back. All right, we're back. So we were talking about the horseshoe crab. Uh, we were talking, and we talked. We mentioned a little bit about spiders. So let's let's get down to it. Let's get down to that that basic factoid uh, that that I, I imagine most of you have heard plenty of times, and that is that the horseshoe crab is not a crab, despite the fact that. We will refer to it off and on as a crab, and you'll find plenty of uh, you know, plenty of studies where scientists will offhandedly just refer to them as crabs. Yeah, everybody keeps calling them crabs, but they're not crabs. True decapod crabs and horseshoe crabs both belong, of course, to the phylum Arthropoda. They are both arthropods, meaning they both have hard exoskeletons. They've got segmented bodies, and they've got multiple pairs of jointed legs. Uh, and the sharing of jointed legs is where the word arthropod comes from. Arthropod means joint 
jointed leg or jointed foot. Uh, but after this, the evolutionary histories of crabs and horseshoe crabs really diverge. Crabs, along with shrimp, lobsters, woodlice, and, and many other creatures, belong to the subphylum of crustacea. We would call them crustaceans. And Forty points out that crustaceans have antennae or feelers on the head uh, used for sensing the environment by touch and by smell, and horseshoe crabs don't have these. So what do they have instead? They have chelicery. Horseshoe crabs are not crustaceans. They are chelicerata. In evolutionary history, they are more closely related to arachnids like spiders, ticks, and scorpions. Which, if you look at the mouth parts of these creatures, like spiders and scorpions, you will find these similar little mouth parts that, that guide food into the orifice, the chelicery. Uh, they're also, uh, sp- uh, horseshoe crabs are also more closely related to an extinct branch of uh, chelicerata known as the eurypterids, also known as sea scorpions. Now, again, in misleading names, sea scorpions is somewhat misleading here because eurypterids were not actually scorpions and they didn't all live in the sea, but they are are truly awesome. This is one of the great lines of extinct creatures. Uh, we, we talked about them uh, in a past episode, didn't we? I think they've come up before, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, so the Eurypterids were briefly a diverse order of predatory animals, including the genus of the largest arthropod ever known to exist on Earth, uh, Jacolopterus, which, based on some fossil remains found in Germany, is estimated to have grown up to about 2.5 meters or over 8 feet in length. Oh, wow. So That's definitely big enough to star in its own horror movie. <laughs> yeah, just try to imagine it. So you get an eight-foot arthropod, a sort of scorpion lobster-like creature, bigger than your whole body, with a plated exoskeleton and claws scuttling around at the water's edge or just hanging out in the shallows in ambush mode. Uh, I have before, I, I, I sometimes like to imagine these types of creatures surviving into modern geologic periods and living alongside humans, and I wondered if the ancient Egyptians would had a Eurypterid headed god in place of the crocodile deity Sobek. <laughs> that would be quite a uh, quite a god to behold. You know, I mentioned that something like this would deserve its own horror movie, but now I'm remembering uh, the creature in Deep Star Six, the underwater horror movie from the director of the original Friday the Thirteenth. Oh, okay. Uh, I believe the monster in that is a Eurypterid. Uh, it is a straight up sea scorpion. I remember Miguel Ferrer exploding in the movie, but I do not remember what the creature looked like. Oh, yeah, he did. I guess he did explode. Um, There's a scene where they're like, don't get in the escape pod. You'll go through explosive decompression. And he's like, no, I'm scared. And then he blows up. I just remember the most recent time I watched it, I was on an airplane uh, on medication. And I remember just thinking it was a wonderful film. We'll see how that would hold up over time. But yeah, uh, well, I mean, all those uh, 1989 underwater horror movies are, are worth a watch. Yeah, but certainly I think it was a case where they're like, okay, we need an underwater monster. Let's look at some real underwater monsters from the past. And they found one and they said, heck, let's not try and recreate the wheel here. Let's do that guy. And so that's what they did. Okay, so these would be the ancient closer relatives to the horseshoe crabs, the, the you know, the arachnids, the scorpions, even the eurypterids. Uh, there are a few extant species of horseshoe crab-like animals, including a few species found in Asia, but the most common by far is the Atlantic horseshoe crab, which has the scientific name of Limulus polyphemus. Uh, so it's got the same name as the uh, the, the cyclopid monster in uh, the Odyssey. Mm. Uh, and and Limulus polyphemus, the, the Atlantic horseshoe crab, can be found primarily along the east coast of North America, roughly from Mexico to Maine. So your wife's grandmother's story, I think, probably more likely happened in in the Outer Banks on the east yeah, coast I'm, of, the, I'm of North like America. I'm 98% sure it was, it was Outer Banks. Uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, another thing that's interesting about the horseshoe crabs is something that's more common to arthropods generally, but like other arthropods, the development of their bodies as they mature happens through a fascinating process called molting. So since these animals have a hard, rigid exoskeleton, you might wonder how would they ever grow? How do they get bigger? Right? You know, you, if you've got a, if you've got your bones on the outside, and molting is the answer. Periodically during its life cycle, the horseshoe crab will bust out of its own exoskeleton and emerge as a softer critter from within, only to quickly have its soft, new, larger outline harden again uh, pretty rapidly in defense against the perils of the sea. 
Now, a normal horseshoe crab takes about 10 years of growing and molting before it reaches sexual maturity, which seems like a very long time for an animal of this kind. Uh, you know, imagine it has to grow for 10 years before it's ready to mate in that orgy on the beach. Yeah, I mean, certainly when we compare it to something like, say, a cat or a dog or you know, a rat, something yeah. like that, where the uh, is a pretty short turnaround. Uh, but this is this is ten years. Uh, but especially many other invertebrates, we, yeah. which you'd think reach sexual maturity very fast. Uh, but after reaching sexual maturity, it never molts again, and instead it heads to the beach for mating to leave fertilized eggs in the wet sand and start the life cycle over again. And so this this life cycle has worked pretty well for the horseshoe crab, and it's worked that way for quite a long time. Yes. The earliest fossil evidence for horseshoe crabs is incredibly ancient. Uh, the, the oldest fossil remnants resembling these modern animals, the modern horseshoe crabs, go all the way back to the Ordovician period. This is so long ago, it's unbelievable. Yeah, we're talking about 450 million years ago. Um, I mean, just consider that, the, for instance, the goblin shark is also something that is sometimes referred to as a living fossil. And mm -hmm. we'll get back to that terminology in a second. But the, the goblin shark, only dates back 125 million years. That's a long time. Which is an extremely I mean, long time, yeah. Uh -huh. um, still incredible. Uh, crocodilia goes back some 95 million years. Hagfish are virtually the same as they were 300 million years ago. Lampreys go back roughly 360 million years. Nautiloids have evolved very little since roughly 500 million years ago, uh, though that's an example of a creature, too, where they were, they were certainly more varied 200 million years ago. Yeah, about this idea of, of a living fossil, Richard Forty actually, he, he kind of warns about this phrase. He calls it, quote, a paradox and an oxymoron rolled into one. Well, yeah, because, I mean, on one level, it is not a fossil. Right. Uh, I think that much is probably obvious to, to most people. It is not a fossil. A fossil cannot be alive. A fossil is inherently the, uh, the, the mineralized uh, remains mm -hmm. of something that uh, once lived. Though he also sort of uses the word cautiously. Uh, his point is mainly that we shouldn't be lulled into the mistaken assumption that a species can exist for millions of years uh, with no changes, for example, without significant genetic change. Genetic changes are always accumulating. They just build up over time, even if the overall form of the animal stays very similar. Uh, and also the ecological surroundings of these organisms change over time. He talks about how even if the, uh, the, the horseshoe crabs of today look extremely similar to the horseshoe crabs of the Jurassic period, the animals all around them would have been completely different. And thus, they, uh, they, they were probably, you know, they had a different ecological niche. They were dealing with different relationships and different in energy dynamics in the, uh, in the environment. Yeah, eating different things, potentially being preyed upon by different things. Mm -hmm. But it is truly remarkable to see a type of animal that has survived, I, I think the horseshoe crabs have survived five different mass extinction events, definitely four, I think five. And they still exist today in, in a body plan that is pretty close to the same animal you would have found 450 million years ago. And so as alternatives to the phrase living fossil, some paleontologists have proposed calling these types of organisms uh, stabilomorphs, you know, that, that – Morph meaning like body, basically, yeah. and stabilo meaning stable, uh, meaning that at some point long ago, there was a, a body plan that was reached and it just has not needed to undergo change much since then. Yeah, this is interesting and, and definitely touches on something we've discussed in the past in terms of of body forms that work. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you see those a basic body form that works to the degree that it is acquired by by rather distantly related relatives, uh, such as uh, such as the basic dolphin or um, the, the basic dolphin form, and it's com you can compare that to uh, to various other fish forms and then also to the reptilian uh, creatures that preceded them, um, mm -hmm. uh, Ichthyosaurus, for example. I was just looking at a, a paper a while ago, or I don't remember where it was, but there was something about how nature repeatedly has tried to build crabs, uh -huh. like crustacean crabs, you yeah. know, the actual crabs, that it's like a form that just kind of nature keeps coming back to from different evolution 
evolutionary pathways and ending up in the same place. Yeah, it's like the most logical engineering solution to a given environment and a given set of challenges. Uh-huh. But of course, with the the ichthyosaurus, of course, went extinct for uh, for some some essential reasons that I think we've touched on on the, the past show mm-hmm. uh, on on the show in the past. But with the horseshoe crab, it's rather different. It's like they acquired this form, and that form has remained relatively stable for the duration. Yeah, I mean, those are two. So you can talk in one sense about forms that are stable and you see that they're they're advantageous because of convergent evolution. Different evolutionary pathways sort of arrive in the same place. But we're talking about animal forms that were achieved at some point in the past and then they just kept working over time. And they didn't undergo significant changes in their lineages, uh, you know, little changes here and there, but not major changes in the body form and they never went extinct. Yeah, I mean, really to invoke some more alien terminology, this is a perfect organism. It it perfectly survives in the environment for which it has evolved and it has remained stable ever since then. Again, surviving mass extinction events for 450 million years. Crazy, yeah. Uh, there's another alternative name for what to call these types of creatures that was actually proposed by Darwin's bulldog, Thomas Henry Huxley, uh, who just called them persistent types. I think that's pretty straightforward. Yeah. But it makes you wonder how on earth is something like this possible? Like what makes animals like the horseshoe crab special? How does this type of creature persist for so long without huge morphological changes uh, and, you know, surviving all these extinction events, never, you know, becoming all that different of an animal fundamentally? Yeah, because I, I can't help but think of think of it in comparison to, say, the business environment, you know, like <laughs> – like what are the the persistent forms in the business world? Like what what brands or franchises or product types just survive for the duration through multiple like economic extinction mm-hmm. events and also surviving all the things changing around them? You know, predators and prey changing the way they behave and the way they eat. You know, things in the in the natural world that are ever trying to find that new uh, niche that will allow them to um, to to the, themselves survive since the early devonian nature has pivoted to video <laughs> yeah, exactly um, so it's uh, you know it, it, when we say that you know they're true survivors that it's like you know perfection i mean really uh, you, you're tempted to go that far and say like something here is just really working that they have not been um Surplanted by some other creature along the way. So many terrific seeming organisms have certainly proven to have a very tenuous uh, role in the environment, but the horseshoe crab remains. Yeah, I mean, we got no room to talk. Puny Homo sapiens, what have we been around, you know, less than a few million years? Yeah, and and we're we're continuing to work hard and making sure that doesn't go too long. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, so actually, so we don't know the answer for sure why the horseshoe crab in particular and animals and other organisms like it has persisted so long in, in its basic body type. But Forty has some general thoughts about the question of uh, of what causes this sort of thing. He's got some arguments, and one that I thought was really interesting was that he talks about how survival is not just about the endurance of the animal, but it's also about the endurance of habitat. So often the ability of an animal type to survive through the eons largely unmodified is a feature of the animal's habitat more than the animal itself. Some habitats are just better equipped to sustain their adapted inhabitants through ecological catastrophe than others. And so what would be an example of this? Well, Forty mentions intertidal zones of the ocean and uh, goes into, quote, shallow subtidal habitats on muddy, sandy shorelines. Now, why would this be a favored habitat for survival through mass extinctions? Well, a big killer for ocean-dwelling organisms during envir- environmental catastrophe appears to be anoxic seas, where due to several cascading factors, you know, when there's a big environmental catastrophe, oxygen is often removed from a lot of the ocean water and the animals in the water can no longer breathe and they die. Even in these conditions, Forty suggests that these shallow, muddy ocean edge habitats could still be pretty well oxygenated. Quote, after all, the wind still ruffled the waves on shore. 
And so many of the organisms adapted to this environment can make do with very little food to begin with, and they tend to bury themselves in sediment at low tide and sort of feed on particles of food that wash in with the surf. And their access to the surface would keep them in oxygen, and their access to the tide would keep them supplied with particles of biomaterial for food. Uh, to quote 40 again, I am tempted to return to the military metaphor. Maybe this habitat was like a tunnel that simply went under the front line. The luck came in if you happened to belong to that special battalion with access to the tunnel. Hmm. And for this reason, he, he points out mud flats as a special sort of extinction event survivor zone. Now, of course, we know that you would often find uh, uh, horseshoe crabs scuttling around in mud flats and tidal areas. Um, now, uh, now, why don't uh, ancient animal forms in zones like this get outcompeted and displaced by new arrivals? Uh, to read from Forty, quote, Populations in many habitats are critically limited by the quantity of food available. However, in places such as mud flats, food may not be the limiting factor. For filter feeding animals, a rich food store is carried into the area with every high tide or is brought from nearby land during storms. The crucial thing is to find living space. The problem is not the food in the trough but making a place at the stall. So if it can establish itself in its burrow, Lingula, a creature he's talking about, is able to compete for food on equal terms with a later arrival, geologically speaking, like a shrimp. This habitat does seem like a good place to be for an organism with conservative tendencies. And so he's sort of talking again about many of the creatures that survive these mass extinctions and go on for long periods of geologic time having kind of um, behaviorally or ecologically conservative behaviors, uh, to quote him again, in one way it is survival of the fittest, but of the fittest habitat with the right design specifications to offer long-term security. Stick in the muds last longest. <laughs> now he also points out a few other things, uh, a few other cases of evolutionary survival of an organism type over geological time. Like if there is a an animal that's a specialist in a specialist niche and then their particular niche by luck persists over time. He gives the example of like lampreys and hagfish that survive as parasites on bony fish. Um, and then uh, and he, he calls these uh, areas that tend to accumulate long-term evolutionary survivors together time havens. Ooh. Yeah, I like that. Uh, and, and finally, he points out also an interesting fact that longevity seems to be a common feature in long-surviving animals, but it alone, of course, won't preserve you. Uh, remember again that uh, that it takes horseshoe crabs 10 years to reach sexual maturity, which is an, an unusually long period of time for an arthropod. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we will venture into the blood. <laughs> All right, we're back. All right, let's talk about blood. So one of the most astonishing things about the horseshoe crab is their amazing blue blood. Uh, it, it's literally blue. Now, why would this be? Uh, humans and other mammals have red blood because of the presence of hemoglobin, which is an iron-based compound that carries oxygen away from the lungs to the rest of the body and then transports carbon dioxide back the other way. Horseshoe crabs do not have hemoglobin. Instead, they have a protein called hemocyanin, which is based on copper instead of iron. And the copper content makes the horseshoe crab's blood blue. I can't help but think of the uh, icor of Talos, the bronze automaton from Greek myth. Oh, yeah. But more specifically, I guess that you have uh, blue blood that shows up in science fiction, like the, the uh, alien opera singer in The Fifth Element, uh, we find out has blue blood. Oh, yeah. Like everyone else, I mainly remember multipass. Um, <laughs> so this hemocyanin-based blood has, has some really amazing properties. So Richard Forty writes of how uh, on this beach in Delaware, when he's walking around looking at all these animals, he comes across many horseshoe crabs crawling around with signs of old wounds that look really like they should have been fatal, like a large hole punched in the middle of the head or just part of the thorax missing or you know broken off tail, whatever. Uh, and the survival of such wounds may in part be due to the amazing clotting power of horseshoe crab blood. Uh, another anatomy fact that we didn't get into earlier was about the circulation of the horseshoe crab. Like many other arthropods, the horseshoe crab has an open circulatory system, and this is very different from our 
mammalian system, uh, known, of course, conversely as the closed system, where blood is entirely contained within vessels, right? If you cut a person open, they've got veins, arteries, capillaries. You have to, you know, to rupture these containers for the blood to spill out. The horseshoe crab is, is something closer to kind of like a box of free-range blood. It has a, a heart-type pump that circulates blood, uh, oxygenated blood from the gills, but then the blood sort of sluices around and bathes the creature's organs without being contained entirely within vessels. So how do horseshoe crabs survive the carnage of these mass mating battles, even having like chunks ripped out of the thorax or holes punched in the head? Forty writes, quote, such endurance is possible because the blood of Limulus polyphemus has exceptional clotting powers. The animal does not bleed to death because its blood coagulates and walls off damaged areas. So this blood is is unique, but uh, it has also proven quite useful to humans. Uh, specifically, it's been become very important to the biomedical industry, which harvests the blood of um, of horseshoe crabs to create what is called limulus ambicite lysate, or LAL, uh, which is used to test medical devices and pharmaceutical drugs for endotoxins. And this is because their blood contains potent uh, amoebocytes, which function like white blood cells. So enzymes are instantly released when they come into contact with bacteria, which is observable uh, at less than one part per, per trillion. So just a tiny drop of the blood can help spot contamination. So it's important for drug implant and environmental safety tests. And this also includes space exploration applications as well. Uh, if you want to see some footage of horseshoe crab blood harvesting uh, in process, you should uh, definitely check out the uh, Nat Geo documentary series, One Strange Rock. Uh, we've heard us talk about this in the past on the show. Uh, excellent documentary, wonderful footage, features a number of astronauts uh, and Will Smith narrating all of this. Uh, but they have a section on there. Uh, it's on Disney Plus right now, so uh, I highly recommend you check it out uh, while you're mainlining all of the Mandalorian goodness there. <laughs> Uh, in fact, it was while watching One Strange Rock that uh, my, with my family that uh, I was reminded that this would be a great topic because uh, my son was watching this and they were showing all these, these horseshoe crabs being lined up and bled. And he just immediately did not like it. And he just gets this very stern look on his face and he says, human beings are the worst. <laughs> and, uh, and I had to reassure him, no, uh, th- these horseshoe crabs are going to, to be fine. Uh, you know, we're not, they're not draining them to death. They are draining them and then uh, uh, a certain portion of their blood and then releasing them into the wild. So th- there is some mortality. Dude. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I was looking around at, uh, on this. Uh, there's a, a paper from the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife Sciences and Hor- Horseshoe Crab Research uh, Center. This is Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University from Linka Hurton. Uh, this is a kind of, this is a small study, uh, but it uh, it looked at the the, mora- the mortality rates for horseshoe crabs. It's going to vary depending on the sex of the of the horseshoe crab and the amount of blood drawn. And also not every specimen that is collected is ultimately deemed suitable for a draw. So the source I was looking at placed male mortality rate anywhere between 0% at 10% blood drawn to 13.6% at 30% blood drawn. While females, it ranged from 0 at 0 to 15.4% at 40% blood drawn. And for wait, th- wait, hold on. Yeah. Oh. No, no, go ahead. Well, wait, why do they ask at 0% drawn? This comes down to the fact that it was such a small study that there were zero that were that had zero percent drawn oh. in this particular study. So, like I say, the very small sample size makes these numbers, you know, not the gospel, but they give some idea of, of what you're looking at here. Okay. Uh, for the females, the f- more standard thirty percent blood draw get was uh, came with a mortality rate of ten point three. So 30% of a, gra- of a crab's blood is generally extracted before it is returned to its natural environment within 72 hours. And they're placed further out usually to, pre- to prevent repeat capture and draining. However, this is still a physically stressful situation. Uh, you know, not to anthropomorphize the creature's experience or anything, but mm. uh, the crabs take three to seven days to regain their blood volume and up to four months for those amoebocytes to return to baseline levels. And they 
they're also usually harvested during spawning periods because this is when they're easiest to catch. A June 2019 study published in the University of Chicago Press uh, looked at the stress placed on the crabs following their bleeding and how it might be uh, impacting their reproductive uh, potency. Um, So Owings et al. found the following. First of all, overall biomedical bleeding may impact the reproductive output of female horseshoe crabs during the season in which they were bled. Uh, Week one following the bleeding, bled animals appeared to spawn less than the controlled animals. And they also found that control females appeared to spawn on average 4.8 times uh, the rate of bled females, which spawned on average just two times. They also found that bled animals uh, tended to stay clear of shallow zones, uh, places that they actually needed to be for breeding purposes. And this might this might be due to disorientation in the animal following the blood uh, draw, mm-hmm. or it also just might all of this might come down to weakness. Like the creature is going to be weakened for a state of you know a, a week or even months following uh, what's gone on here, and that may impact their reproductive health as well. So all of this can ultimately alter the sex ratio at those breeding areas that we talked about at the the top of the program, which is then going to impact reproduction overall for the species in these areas where blood harvesting is taking place. So the harvesting of horseshoe crab blood probably has saved thousands or millions of lives over the years that it's been done, but it's still not good to be hurting these populations like this. It is, uh, you know, and, and again, like this is a study from just last year. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're we're still learning more and more about the impact as we are also looking for ways to get, uh, you know, better ways to get away from the use of horseshoe crab blood because and it is. There are some synthetic solutions now, right? Right. Yeah, there are. And we're generally we're looking at a future where we're going to depend less on it. Another thing to keep in mind is this is not the only risk factor for horseshoe crabs. It would be one thing if it were, but uh, they are also harvested for their eggs so they can be used as bait for eels as well as uh, uh, creatures known as whelk. Yeah, Forty was talking about this in his book. The whelk is some kind of conch-like animal that uh, people fishing for it have used horseshoe crabs as bait. So, uh, you know, these are two different human practices that are having varying degrees of impact um, on their reproductive health. And we we have to come back again to the fact that this is not just some mere outsider species that's just left over from a bygone age. They are keystone species. Their eggs are an important food source for a number of organisms, again, including migratory seabirds. So the future promises new biomedical tests, as well as hopefully alternative baits for the fishing industry. And hopefully all of this will come together to ensure the long-term survival of the horseshoe crab. I hope it is not the sixth extinction that wipes them out. But that's the thing, isn't it? The the great sixth uh, mass extinction event uh, is proving to be the, the human uh, occupation of the planet. However, the, the one thing we have going for us is that this extinction event is largely self-conscious, or at least its self-consciousness is growing. I'm going to be an optimist. And it can do things like uh, curb its uh, its fishing practices. It can do things uh, that are self-reflective and hopefully sustainable. Yeah. Save the limuli, folks. Their scuttling masses are precious. Absolutely. All right, so there you have it, the horseshoe crab. Obviously, we'd love to hear from everybody, especially those of you who have uh, you know, any firsthand experience with the horseshoe crab. If you have ever eaten uh, the row of horseshoe crabs, let us know. We'd love to hear about that as well. In the meantime, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, and that'll redirect you to a place where you can find the episodes. But wherever you find us, just make sure that you subscribe, that you rate, and that you review. And don't forget to check out Invention. That's our other show that deals with human techno history. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.